Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Happy Father's Day. I know that uh, for, for those of you uh, men that, that might not even be uh, biological fathers necessarily, I guarantee you in some way, shape, or form, you will be a father figure to somebody along the way. And, and it, just know the importance of that is it cannot be overstated, uh, especially in, in a culture and a time that we live in, um, strong uh, Strong men that are able and willing to lead their families into greater and deeper relationship with the Lord uh, is what this this world desperately needs. So thank you for the work uh, that you're doing. Um, Today is a little bit different than kind of the normal setup. And what I mean by that is that our scripture, I want to kind of divide it up into two little sections. So we're, we're in, for those of you that have been with us uh, along our journey, we have been going through the gospel of John. Uh, we've made it to chapter seven. We started that last week. We're continuing that this week. And we're looking at verses 25 to 44 this week, 25 to 44. But I want to do it in two kind of chunks. So the first part, really sets the stage for the last part. So we're going to look at verses 25 to 36 first, and then we're going to spend uh, a lot of the time looking at 37 to 39, and then uh, we'll we'll finish it out. But so uh, the reason I'm telling you that up front is because some of you really like the the historical pieces, uh, kind of the story behind the story, so to speak. Uh, And so we're going to have some of that today, quite a bit of it, actually. And so if you're interested in that kind of thing, I think this is going to be wonderful. And if you think, ah, history, who cares? Well, maybe we won't be as excited about that. But I want to challenge you to go through this experience recognizing that when we understand how all of Scripture is connected together, and we understand how, how Scripture as a whole testifies to this Jesus and who he truly is and what he's come to do and what he has been doing and what he will be doing, all of that, when we recognize that uh, and we see how it's connected, then our testimony even becomes stronger because we know then more who this Jesus is as we go out and share him with the world, with a broken and chaotic world. So we're going to spend some time and talk about the background in this. Uh, But if you'll recall, last time we talked about how in in chapters, you started to see it in chapter six. We definitely have already seen it in chapter seven, and we will continue to see it through the end of chapter seven and also into chapter eight, where the conflict or the division that Jesus is causing is escalating. And this is all because God's got a plan. It's on God's timing. And God knows uh, that, that Jesus' hour will eventually come. Remember this this phrase that Jesus, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And he's always looking forward to the time where he knows he will be arrested, crucified. And he's looking to that in the future and seeing how this conflict that leads to that is continuing to build up. But it's not coincidental. Remember, this last week we started talking about how this chapter 7 is all surrounded, or the backdrop of it, is this festival of tabernacles. Festival of tabernacles, or sometimes it's called the, the festival or feast of booths. And it's, it's significant that Jesus does and says what he does and says in this particular passage in light of 
all of this context, all of this history, all of, all of what Israel uh, as a people has been going through for, for hundreds and thousands of years previous, it, it all kind of leads up to this particular moment where Jesus makes this unexpected invitation for people to come to him. And we're going to get into to why that is. But first, first, we got to get there. We got to live in this division that Jesus creates wherever he goes. Now, this is not God's desire. God doesn't want to create more division. But when the world refuses to accept Jesus for who he is, the natural outcome of that, and you know this in your own lives, the natural outcome is that there is division over Jesus, who he is. What should we think of him? Do we trust him? Should we believe in him? What does that even mean? All of those kinds of things are very dividing amongst people because Jesus is very difficult to pin down when we try to put him in our boxes and we try to define him with our definitions and we try to say, aha, we finally figured it out. Amazingly enough, he just seems to, to slip out of that because he will not be defined in the way or, or by us uh, saying that we get to control who he is and what he's up to. And so that, that's kind of playing out here. And so I want to start in verse 25. Uh, and, and we're just going to, we're going to go through this a little bit of chunk of the time, rather than reading all of it up front, uh, we're just going to read it a little bit at a time. So let's start in verse 25 and we'll go from 25 to 27 here. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word about him or a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man came from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Okay, now at that point, we start to see the continuation of this division. If you remember last week, what was happening was Jesus was in the temple courts and he was teaching. And the things that he was, he was saying were, it was catching everybody's attention. But it wasn't even just what he was saying. It was the ways in which he was saying these things. The things themselves he was saying were offensive enough. But the way that he was saying it was, he was claiming authority that the people were wondering, where is he getting this authority? Rather than relying on, well, so-and-so rabbi said this, and so-and-so rabbi said that, and then here's what we're going to make this conclusion as a result, he was saying things like, very truly I tell you, or to tell you the truth, or things that suggest that he's speaking from a position of authority, that they're, this is unfamiliar to them. So the, the people are divided. Some people said, well, he's a good man, and other people said, no, he's just a deceiver. He's just a deceiver. And so the crowds are kind of divided. Now, remember, up to that point, the crowds were all in favor of him uh, until chapter six. He was wildly popular even at the beginning of chapter six because of the things that he was doing, the miracles and the signs and the wonders he was performing. More and more people wanted to get in on the action. But then when he started speaking, that's when the trouble started. That's when people started to fall away. And when he started making all these comparisons to Moses and how, well, Moses didn't really do anything. It was actually God doing it. But then even more offensive, it was like, by the way, I'm the real bread from heaven. 
I'm the real, the bread of life. Remember, that's what he said. And, and this, and he, he even went on to say, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, then there's no life in you. Well, that's, that's offensive to them. That's offensive to us. And so there's, there's no surprise here that there is division. It's always the case whenever Jesus is involved. And so going on in verse 28 and 29, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Now, when we put those two things together, we're saying, okay, we've got this, this group of people that's trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, what's really going on here? Uh, is he a good man? Is he a deceiver? Well, now they've, they've gone to the next level of questioning where they're thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe these religious leaders have come to a conclusion about this Jesus that they just haven't told us about. Because Remember last week, even though some people were saying he was a good man, some people were saying he was a deceiver, nobody was saying it out loud. They were whispering it because they were terrified of what the religious leaders would do. They didn't know what to think. Now, the religious leaders, they appear to be less divided. They appear to be in agreement that this Jesus guy needs to go. Uh, we saw what he did here before. He violated the Sabbath. Uh, he seems to, to, to be speaking from uh, an authority position where he's calling himself equal to God. This is no good. Uh, and so therefore, he's got to go. But now the people are wondering, well, then why are the leaders letting this guy continue to speak and to teach? Why, why are they not doing anything about this? And then they ask, well, maybe. Have they concluded that he's the Messiah, and they just haven't told us that? And so then there's this weird sounding phrase in there where the people are saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, we know that when the Messiah comes, that we're, we won't know where he came from, and we know where Jesus came from, so he can't be the Messiah. Now, we might be tempted to think that that has to do with the location of, of where he was born, because remember, there are prophecies that, that have predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But that's not what they're talking about. They're not talking about a physical location of birth here. What they're talking about is there was a tradition that developed over time that started to believe that the Messiah, even though this person would be flesh and blood and, and all that kind of stuff, that the Messiah would do something that was so captivating, that was so uh, openly... Uh, unbelievable that everyone would know immediately this is the Messiah. Namely, start kicking the Romans out. That, that was the main thing is when, when this, this person uh, arrives on the scene, uh, he will sort of come out of nowhere in terms of he will start making changes that Israel has long been waiting for. And so they're saying, well, this can't be this Jesus guy because we know where he came from. We, we know that he's grown up. We know his parents. We know his brothers. Uh, we, we don't understand what he's all about. And so because of that kind of confusion over his identity, they're concluding, well, he's not the Messiah. And that's when Jesus says, um, yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. But he says, 
I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So Jesus is just basically doubling down on what he's already said that has offended them. Now there's a couple of significant pieces about that. This is at this Feast of Tabernacles, the most celebrated uh, of the three big Jewish festivals that would happen every year. Uh, this is the most celebratory. This is where people, uh, they go to Jerusalem and this is an eight day celebration. And so there's all this noise and all of this celebration. That's, oh, the, 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 the town of Jerusalem would have been swelled full of thousands upon thousands of people that have as pilgrims come to Jerusalem for this festival. And in the middle of that, it says the Greek uh, that talks about Jesus crying out in a loud voice is a really strong word. It means he's speaking at the top of his lungs and he's saying, hey, this is the most offensive piece of it. You do not know him who sent me. Now for you and I, maybe it's hard for us to relate about how offensive that is. But to a people, God's chosen people, God's people that, that he has provided for all along the way, all throughout this journey, who have lived in relationship, good, bad, and ugly. They've lived in relationship with this God for Jesus to say, you don't know him, but I do. It's very offensive. It's very offensive. And so it's kind of no surprise that right after that, then we see in verse 30 at this, at this statement, at this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And so again, just like we saw last week, God's will is done in God's timing. That's what we see playing out here as well. All of this is coming to a head at this particular festival, in this particular place, at this particular time, because that is the way God has ordained it to occur. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders and, and the people here start to recognize, well, Jesus seems to be gaining traction here. He, he, the word seems to be getting out. That's a, that's a real problem because it says right there that still many in the crowd believed in him. Well, as people were believing in him, as they were trusting him, they continued to whisper and the word continued to spread, we might say in uh, our modern world that uh, he started trending on Twitter, right? Uh, he starts being a big deal, or maybe he's gone viral, which that has a whole new meaning now, but his popularity is starting to spread amongst the crowd, and this makes the religious leaders even more nervous than they were before. So they send the guards, they try to put a stop to it. But then when we look at verse 33, Jesus says things that confuse them even more. Look at this. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time. And then I am going to be with the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. 
The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So you see just, just this statement, just his disclosure here about, again, pieces of his identity divides the people even more. They don't understand what he said. What does he mean? He's going to go somewhere where we can't find him. They think, again, it's got to be, well, this physical place. Is he going to where the Gentiles are? Is he going where the non-Jewish people are? Is he going to mix in with there? Because we already know from our past uh, work through the, the gospel of John that the people of Israel are not real big on mixing it up with the Gentiles. And so the, for, for those of us here that might not know that, this just means non-Jewish. And so for, they're wondering like, well, is he going to the, then the text calls the Greeks. Is he going to hang out with the Greeks? Because, well, we wouldn't find him there because we certainly wouldn't be looking there. Why would we ever go there? Is that what he means? What does he mean? There's more confusion. There's more division. There's more debate. And yet Jesus is talking about something they don't understand. Now, we have the benefit of knowing how all of this turns out, but they would have been hearing all of this and experiencing all this, and of course, they're confused because Jesus is basically saying that where he's going is through the cross. He will be put to death for the sin of the world. He will be raised again to new life, and he will invite others to join him in relationship so that we can receive new life and they can receive new life too. And then he's going to ascend again and be with the one who sent him. Well, the, the people don't, they certainly don't understand that that is what he is saying. But they don't like what he's saying and they are confused and they are debating and they are divided. But this is the main thing that it's all leading up to is this self-disclosure of who Jesus is by the way of inviting people to come to him. And so I want to give just a little bit more background about this, this feast of tabernacles or festival of tabernacles, because it helps us understand how all of these things are connected together in ways that we might not otherwise recognize. Now, this whole festival was outlined. It was a command that was actually given to Moses by God. Remember, God rescued the people who were held captive in Egypt, and he brought the people out, part of the Red Sea, led the people through this, this guy named Moses, led them out into the wilderness for 40 years. They wandered around out in the wilderness while God was teaching them what it means to follow them. And part of that was... God wanted them never to forget what he had done for them. So it, I know this is going to be one of your top five uh, places that you're spending a lot of time in your Bible, but Leviticus uh, chapter 23 is where you can actually find some more specifics about this festival of tabernacles. It was designed to help the people remember God's deliverance, yes, but also God's provision, because when the people were wandering out in the wilderness, resources were either scarce or non-existent. The people would have starved to death without water. They surely would have died. And where there was no water and there was no food, God miraculously provided. 
He rained down bread from heaven. And remember in chapter six, Jesus said, I am that bread. I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. It wasn't Moses doing anything. It was God doing it. And he was doing it through Jesus, who then is claiming to be the bread from heaven. Okay. Then we've got this water. And that's what we're going to talk a lot about today. This water, this, this ceremony uh, that, that occurred every day as part of this feast included a lot to do with water. Uh, in, in particular, all right, so th- just I'm going to give you the, kind of an overview, and, and then I hope that we can see how this kind of connects together. And we'll just look at this one aspect. There was this ceremony daily where the priest, the Levitical priests, would go down. They would take a golden pitcher, and they would go down to this place in Jerusalem called the Pool of Siloam. And that pool was often referred to as containing living water. And we'll talk about why that is in just a moment. But they would then draw water in this golden pitcher for this ceremony. Now, why would they call it living water? What's the significance of this? Well, this pool of Siloam is fed by this freshwater spring that's like no other spring I've ever heard of. And I'm, maybe there are others out there, but this thing is called the, the, the spring of Gihon. And this spring, which still is doing this today, bubbles or gushes forth fresh water at intervals all throughout the day. And those intervals change based on the season. This is fascinating. And so uh, remember when, when Jesus was talking about living water with the woman at the well in Samaria. Anybody remember what he said? Uh, Come to me and I will give you living water that will gush up, bubble up in you, leading to eternal life. So you see there's this connection to this living water. And now here we have this, this gushing freshwater spring that is filling this pool of Siloam. And, you know, a lot of times as we go through the Gospel of John together, if you've not heard this before, there are a lot of of biblical scholars that try to say things like, oh, well, you know, John just made up a lot of stuff when he was writing this. You know, he refers to all these places that don't exist. And he talks about uh, all these circumstances that nobody has any record of. And so while while the the gospel is, is theologically true, it certainly isn't based on history. It has no historical grounding whatsoever. And it's always interesting when every once in a while, there's something that comes out that blows that whole thing apart. I want to share this with you. I found this in uh, an article in the Los Angeles Times from 2005 because, whoops, in 2004, they excavated the Pool of Siloam. Now, how did they know it was the Pool of Siloam? It has an inscription. It says, this is the Pool of Siloam. I mean, this is it. And so I just thought it was so fascinating, this quote. Now, this is from a guy named uh, Herschel Shanks, who was the editor of Biblical Archaeology Review. And this is what he said. Scholars have said that there wasn't a Pool of Siloam and that John was using a religious conceit just to illustrate a point. But now we have found the Pool of Siloam. And it's exactly where John said it was. A gospel that was thought to be pure theology is now shown to be grounded in history. Isn't that interesting? And so we have this confirmation that comes so much later for what we already know to be true, that the Bible is 
trustworthy, that we can trust it. And here we have continued validation and affirmation in an overly skeptical world. That should, that should help give us even more confidence. But the good news continues because this idea of living water, where they go and they draw the water out of this spring. Well, the reason also that it's called living water is because this whole freshwater system was engineered and developed by King Hezekiah, who was a Judean king, 8th century BC, eight centuries before Jesus. And he knew that if the city of Jerusalem was attacked, that they would not survive unless they had clean water. And so they excavated this whole tunnel system. They call it, I think, Hezekiah's tunnel, but they, they have this freshwater system that, that takes this spring water from the Gihon Spring and kind of puts it around. And then because that spring uh, delivers the water at these intervals, they have these little pools that collect it. Now it can't keep it forever because it eventually flows out but they can store it for a little bit of time. And that gave the people life. It was life-giving water in the midst of attacks that were coming against Jerusalem. So very, it's, it's, it's not only a, a spiritual thing, it's a physical thing. Water is a required piece of what it means for us to stay alive. We need it. Now you and I might not hear that in the same way because we all tend to live in places, at least in this country, where, where we take for granted how easy it is for us to access clean water and to sustain life. We walk over to the sink and turn it on and out comes clean, safe water. But in a world where right now people are selling $28 million seats on a rocket ship to take an 11-minute journey into outer space. Think about that, $28 million, 11 minutes into outer space. We still have over 28% of the world's population that today does not have access to clean and safe water. 2.1 billion people. Do you think that when their ears hear somebody talking about living water, that they might understand it a little bit differently than we do? Well, that's what I want you to keep in mind for these people here. When all these ceremonies that are related to water are happening, this is a very big deal because their ancestors were the ones who would have perished in the wilderness without this life-giving water that was provided by God. Moses hit the rock with his staff and out came water. Okay? Now, on the Back to the, the ceremony. They take the golden pitcher. This is, happens each day of the festival. They've drawn it from the pool of Siloam. They walk back into the temple through the water's gate. And then they, the people are cheering. The people are reciting uh, this, this scripture that we know as Isaiah 12, verse 3. Isaiah 12, verse 3, it says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So there we see this connection. This living water is connected with salvation. So it's physically sustaining, but it's also somehow spiritually sustaining. And so you'll see that Jesus is working with both things here, just like he did with the bread of heaven. He fed the people bread before he taught the people about him being the bread of life. He met their physical needs and their spiritual 
needs. And so we, we have that same kind of God because he is the same God. He provides for us all the time. What are we doing to celebrate and recognize that? Do, do, we, do we take for granted too much of what we have provided by God that we think, well, maybe we're just providing it ourselves. Maybe it's not from God. Maybe it's just from us. What are the ways that we stop ourselves from falling into that trap? What are the ways that we celebrate God's provision in a country and in a circumstance that many of us are not thinking about those survival things on a daily basis? So this, this, this water, then the, the pitcher comes back in, it goes through the water's gate, and the people are, are chanting this, uh, this line from uh, Isaiah. And then they're singing songs of praise and celebration. And then right, the priest gets right up to the altar. He takes the pitcher and then everybody gets really quiet. It's all really quiet. And then the priest pours the water out of the pitcher into these two silver bowls. And the bowls overflow with the water. And the water spills out all over the altar as a representation of God's abundant provision and abundant care. And then the people, you know, go crazy. And, and it's, it's a really, a really, that's the, the most celebrated time of the day. But the most celebrated time of the whole thing is that ceremony on the last day of the feast. Because on the last day of the feast, all of this is happening. Priest comes in and instead of just pouring the water in the silver bowls. He walks around the altar seven times. Does that imagery sound familiar? The Israelites walked seven times around the walls of Jericho before they came tumbling down. And when those walls came tumbling down, that was the end of the Israelites in the wilderness. They had made it then to the promised land. They would start living in permanent structures instead of these temporary booths, these temporary tabernacles. So this part, this, this is the height of the whole thing. This is where everybody is at, you know, the most jubilant. And right in the middle of that, we don't know exactly if this is the time, but we can get a pretty good indication that uh, if you look at verse 37, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival. So this would be probably right in that moment, right during that ceremony. The priest is coming in. He's walked around the altar. The people are waiting for the water to be poured out, spilling over onto the altar, and they're holding their breath, waiting for it. And in that moment, Jesus said, again, he cries out in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Well, that changes everything. Jesus, by doing this, has made the audacious, audacious claim that he is the fulfillment of all of what has happened up to that point that he is the fulfillment of everything that they are celebrating, that everything that they are thankful for, everything that they are thanking God for in terms of his provision has been provided through 
Jesus. Now, you, you and I may not have any direct comparison to relate to something like that. So the only thing I could come up with is, you know, at my house, you know, back when we were able to get together for Thanksgiving and all that kind of stuff, it's a little harder now, but uh, when we, we were sitting around the table and my mom would say, well, now we're going to go around and everybody's going to say what they're thankful for, Right. Maybe you do this too. But uh, so, you know, what if in the middle of, of going through this and doing this, somebody from the other room stands up and screams, what you're really thankful for is me. Awkward, right? Maybe you have relatives that do this. There's always somebody that would probably do something like this. But the point is that you take the celebration and all of a sudden there's this disruption and then there's this refocus, and all of a sudden, all of that attention is going onto this particular person. It's Jesus, and Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me and drink. Now, when it comes to our concept of that, again, our understanding of that, maybe because we don't have that shared history in terms of our ancestors wandering in the wilderness. And maybe some of you are from a part of the world where, where God has provided in miraculous ways. And this means even more to you, you and your ears when you hear it than some of the rest of us. But here's what the apostle Paul said to help us understand not only his uh, audience that he was writing this letter to, but, but us today. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, listen to this. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they uh, all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Here we go. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. So Paul is helping the people know that all that is provided is fulfilled ultimately in who Jesus is, because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to provide. That's where this has all come now, is that in the midst of celebrating this feast, Jesus had said, all of this is fulfilled in me. Come to me all who are thirsty. Jesus is the one who will provide the true living water. Now, do you see how that amazing moment would have caused all kinds of controversy, would cause all kinds of division? What in the world is he talking about? And what does this invitation mean? What does this invitation to come to him and drink what does that mean? Not just to them, but to us. I want to look at three aspects of this invitation. And the first thing is that Jesus is living water. Jesus is living water. You'll notice in verse 37, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He doesn't say, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and I will point you in the right direction. He doesn't say, come to me and I will give you some, some tips and maybe even some maps on well drilling. No, he says, come to me and drink. Jesus is the living water. He is the living water. And so I wonder today when you're thinking about this in your own life, 
We all at some level know what it's like to be thirsty. Physically thirsty, yes. But our souls thirst as well. Our souls thirst. And we do all kinds of things attempting to satisfy that thirst. And we will go all the way down a very dark path without ever wanting to say, you know what? I need to get rid of all of this and instead have my thirst be satisfied in Jesus alone. That, that is not the first thing that comes to our mind. We think, oh, I can figure out a way around this. I, I can solve this problem myself. I don't need to rely and trust in God. I can do this myself. And Jesus is putting an end to all of that and saying, no, you can't. Come to me if you're thirsty. And that really is the only requirement, right? That's the second aspect. It's open. This invitation that Jesus is giving is open to anyone, not just to some, not just to religious people, not just to people that think they have it all figured out, not people that, that, uh, that present themselves really well, not based on your behavior or performance, but based on who he is. He's calling anyone who is thirsty. So when you recognize that you are thirsty in your life and that you are doing things that are trying to mitigate that thirst, that are leading you further and further away from God, Jesus is saying, no, no more. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Come to me and I will give you this, this living water because Jesus is the living water. So this invitation is open to anyone. It says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And you see then this connection again. Think back to, to this, this tunnel system delivering the fresh water in Jerusalem at these intervals, okay? The water is not meant to just stay there forever, stagnant like a nasty pond where you go down there and get mosquitoes this big. That's not what's happening. It's a, it's a constant flowing, fresh water. The stream is flowing. Yeah, it's for our benefit, but it's not only for our benefit. It is so that that living water flows through us and out into the world that God loves so much. He does this with his abundant grace. We've talked about this over and over again. Our God is a God of abundance. He has proven this over and over again. And that's the third aspect is that God gives us more grace than we can handle. He gives us more than we can handle. It spills out, or it should spill out of us into the world around us, onto the people around us. There's a lot of different ways you could say this, but I've just come up with a real good one. You ready for it? Pickles. I hate pickles. <laughs> don't send me emails. I don't like pickles, okay? But here's the reality about pickles. When you have a pickle, 
And let's say you go get a sandwich somewhere and you're, let's say you happen to see this whole thing. That's even worse when you watch it happen, but it's all going down the line and everything's going great. I'll take a little of this, a little of that. They put it on there and they get to the end of the line and they take their, their usually thankfully gloved hand and they dip their hand in the big pickle they go, and they pull the pickle out and they slap it on there and dang it. Now everything tastes like pickles, right? Everything a pickle touches tastes like pickles. So you got your fries there. Soggy, pickle juice, they all taste like pickles. You got the bun, pickles. But the point is that pickles can't help it. It's just who they are. They just, this is just the reality. So what is it like for us to be full of God's grace, to be full of this living water? Is your life, is, is there evidence in your life, is there fruit in your life that demonstrates that you're spilling God's grace out and touching all of the kinds of folks that God is putting into your life with God's grace? Are you letting them know about who he is, what he's done, how he provides, and how he will continue to do so because his promises have been fulfilled in this person, Jesus? Boy, I'd like you to meet him. Because when you recognize how thirsty you truly are, you will come to him and he will give you living water. You'll never be thirsty again. Now, that doesn't mean that you just go get the living water one time and thank you very much. I'm going to figure out a way to, to damn this thing up and I'm going to hold on to this water as much as I possibly can. No, it's a relationship. It continues as we are in relationship with God. It continues to flow through us and out to other people in this world that God loves so much. This is all, of course, a reference, as it says here in verse 39, by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, again, you and I have the benefit of having the gift of the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he was crucified for our sin, because he was raised for our righteousness, not because of our performance, but because of who he is. And he's given that righteousness to us as a gift. And we are restored in our relationship with God. That's an amazing thing, but it doesn't stop there. It flows then out of us to other people. And that is all a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we get the Holy Spirit. When we believe and we trust in Jesus, then rivers of living water flow within us, out of us, just as Jesus has promised to deliver. Again, the fulfillment of God's promises happens through Jesus and by the person and presence of the Holy Spirit who each of us has the gift to receive if we will just come to Jesus and drink the living water. So I don't, I don't know where you're at today, but this is what I do know. We're going to just uh, end here with uh, verse 43. It says this, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. They were divided because of Jesus. You and I both know that in an ever skeptical world, 
who doesn't know what to think about Jesus because Jesus doesn't come from this world. He comes from outside of this world and into our world and he challenges and he breaks apart all of the things we think we have all figured out. We know that as a result, there will be division, not because God doesn't love, but because we just won't receive. We just continue to think, ah, I'd rather just do it on my own. And so this invitation from Jesus, maybe this is for you today for the first time. Maybe it's the first time you've said, hey, you know what? I'm really thirsty. My life is a mess. I've tried to fix it all the ways I know how. I've turned to all the wrong things and nothing has worked. Maybe today is the day that you come to Jesus in your heart and in your mind and you drink the living water. Maybe it's time to stop drinking whatever else you might be drinking that you think is gonna sustain you and instead drink from this unending supply of living water that Jesus gives you. Or maybe you know Jesus and maybe you trust Jesus, but maybe you've started to turn your back on him and walk away. And maybe you've started to think, well, I think I've got it from here, thank you very much. And so know that the invitation is for you too. Come to Jesus, drink from this life-giving water, be saved, and then continue to live your life in a way that, that shows evidence, fruit of that salvation God has given you as he draws more and more people through you by his Holy Spirit into that same kind of relationship that you have. And so what what is your response to Jesus' invitation? How, how do you respond? Interestingly enough, the, the whole Bible, Genesis, begins with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in creation. So there we have water. All the way at the very end in Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, it's almost the, in the last paragraph of Scripture. We see this, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. Is that you today? Is today the day that you come and drink from the living water? I hope so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you that you are good and that you give us way more than we could ever imagine, comprehend, or handle. Abundantly more. Lord, would you make us instruments of that same grace, that same mercy, that we might be the outpouring of your spirit that gets poured out in everything that we do, where we live, our jobs, who we come in contact with in whatever ways you draw them to us, Lord, would you help us be your witnesses? And Lord, we know that oftentimes it's not where we would want to go, not what we would want to do, but Lord, please lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit and guide us from this gushing, living water 
that you've placed inside us in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we trust you. We thank you. We give all glory to you. We turn from the ways that we have wandered off trying to satisfy our thirst in any of the worldly ways that ultimately fail. And we turn to you. Ask, Lord, that you be our source of life. We thank you and we praise you for this time that we've had together. It's in Jesus' name we pray.